חג שמח, סקול שנים רבות. Thank you so much to Joey and Rhoda for hosting this class, to SD for preparing everything for everyone uh, coming and being a part of it. It's, it's very special to be back in the Sukkah this year and uh, to be uh, teaching a class, Le'ilui Nishmat Moshe Ben Esther, Tehi Nishmato Rabbi Tzror HaChayim. Amen. I'd like to share with you a, a thought on Sukkot specifically, but it's really a further-reaching concept and a broader perspective on life as a Jew, life as a human being. And I'd like to, though, paint it and to structure it around concepts from the, uh, from the holiday of Sukkot. When it comes to the holiday of Sukkot, of all the holidays, there's a focus, and I don't know that we do this on any other holiday, on this uh, Sukkot Oro Shel Livyatan. There's a focus on this Livyatan. Um, now, the Sukkot Oro, we'll talk about those words in a moment. Of course, that's only going to be on Sukkot. But what and who is Livyatan? The truth is, I'm not 100% certain. But what I can tell you is, I remember the first time, that's right, thank God I'm sitting next to Jack. Jack can help us with that. Um, but what I can tell you is, I remember the first time discovering the entity, the idea of there being something named Livyatan. I was reading Rashi al HaTorah as a child. And I got to uh, the 21st Pasuk in Bereshit, Perek Aleph, where the Pasuk describes God's creation of the Taninim. And Taninim is a hard word to translate as well. I know what Jack has told me in, in later years, but something about great and large sea creatures. Says Rashi, quoting from the Midrash, that's the Livyatan. Rashi goes further, he says, that there was a creation of both a male and a female, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this, and the female was slaughtered and salted to be preserved, writes Rashi, for the righteous ones to consume the flesh of this great sea creature in the future. I remember being very perplexed as then, as I am today, went and asked a few people and got no direct responses, no even indirect responses. Again, I didn't know Jack at the time. It was, it was my deficiency uh, in understanding it. But Livyatan, as we know as well from Pesukim and Tehilim, it's mentioned in Barechi Nafshi, even in that Mizmor, Livyatan is a, a concept, a reality, which the Pesukim describe of some sort of uh, large sea creature affiliated and associated with end of days. And it's not only Judaism which has such a concept and speaks about it from time to time, it's other cultures and religions as well. Uh, the full underlying reality or lesson of, uh, and, and concept, I won't be able to, or, or, or won't be willing to, I should say, if I want to impress Jack, uh, do tonight. But I'd like to glean for a moment or two together with you uh, a certain lesson with regards to the Hachamim's portrayal of Livyatan, and specifically in the context of the holiday of Sukkot. Because after all, when you say Birkat HaMazon, we have at the very end of Birkat HaMazon, Yihiratzons, and the Yihiratzon of Sukkot, not of Shavuot, nor of Pesach, nor of Shabbat, or any other day, is that we should sit Sukkot Orosh Livyatan. We should sit in the Sukkah, which is made or covered, not fully clear, with the leather, or the skin better yet, of the Leviathan, of Livyatan. And that reference, that uh, mention is just perplexing. Uh, first and foremost, not to be fully discussed, but again, is it a reference to the walls of a sukkah in the future? Is it a reference to instead of the sechach of the sukkah in the future? Is it a literal sukkah of Livyatan? Is it that same Livyatan that the rabbis described being slaughtered and preserved? 
more than anything, what's the, what is a lesson that's to be derived from this? The truth is that that mention of that Yehidason is sort of mentioned by Rama some several hundred years ago in source number two. Rama and Siman Tafresh Samachzain writes, Yeshe Nahaguk Shehayu Yosim in Asukah, Yu Omrim, Yehidason Sheniske Leshev Besukah Shem Livyatan. That's quoting it from Kolbo. There's a custom too when you leave the Sukkah to say, uh, please God, it should be your will that we sit in the Sukkah of Livyatan. There are different nushaot on this. If Livyatan is an end of days or after death reality, it's a little jarring to say those words. Um, but uh, those words are, we should, uh, we should merit. There's a different version. It should be Lishana Haba'a. That's a little bit harder to wrap your head around than many of the Mepharshim discuss that. Is there mention of this Livyatan in our Gemara? There are several. The most a uh, famous one is the first source, is the Gemara Maseche Bava Batran Daf Ayin He Amud Aleph. Two separate statements. First of Rabbi Yohanan, Atid HaKadosh Baruch Hu La'asot Se'uda La'sadikim Mibbisaro Shel Livyatan. So there's the reference. That's the Rashi in his commentary to the Torah. In the future, there's going to be a meal for the righteous ones. Again, future means what? After their death? Means in the end of days? And they're not fully clear. And they're going to be eating from the flesh of Livyatan. Um, I imagine it'll taste like a good. Skin roll. A salmon skin roll, if you say so. I'd yeah, imagine it's going to taste even better than that. <laughs> but, but you know, that's, and then the Gemara goes on when it says, "Ve'amarabiyohananatidakadosh mm-hmm. baruchu la'asot sukkah la'sadikim me'oros sheliviyatan." It's a separate statement that the sukkah, and not only the food, but the skin <laughs> of the fish as well. Again, this. Almost mythical description, this midrashic description of the hachamim. The skin will somehow be used as well. It's an interesting reference in turn. The Gemara is describing not only eating of the flesh in the future, but don't think that we're just going to skin the fish and discard it. The skin will be used as a sukkah, as some sort of um, a dwelling place um, structure for us in the future. It's not directly linked to the holiday of Sukkot, per se, but in source number three, in Yalkut Shimoni, which is a collection of Midrashim, it says, Amar Bilevi, kol mi shimekayem mitzvat sukkah ba'olam hazeh, af ha-gadosh baruchu meshivo besukkato shel leviatan le'atid lavo, shene'eman, he cites a pasuk, which is really mentioned in the Gemara as well. So the description in turn is any person who appropriately fulfills the mitzvah of sukkah, it's almost reciprocal in the eyes of the rabbis. You appropriately performed the mitzvah of sukkah in this world, well, in the world to come in some way, shape, or form, the sukkah that you'll be housed in is the sukkah of Oroshe Livyatan. Uh, I remember you once making a distinction with Adam and Hava, where Borei Olam wanted to give them an or, but they ended up using the earthly things. So maybe that's the, we want to get out of the sukkah of the earthly wood and vegetation and go back to the or. Indeed, it was a thought that crossed my mind as I was coming here. We'll need a little bit more time right. to develop that point. It was going to be a final comment. But with Jack already, thank you for... Did you know, I blow it? No, no, not at all. It's it fantastic. Uh, what Jack refers to is how the Pisukim, uh, you know, we're like just treading here and you're already in the deep zone. But anyway, um, how the Pisukim and Bereshit describe how Adam and Hava craft for themselves uh, loincloth uh, from uh, from the leaves of a uh, of a uh, fig tree, 
And God, in turn, gives them clothing of or. He makes for them kotnot or vayel bishem. There's some sort of contrast over there between the natural reference and that which comes, well, maybe from an animal or something otherwise. Uh, Jack's, in turn, likening that to this reality. Well, the sukkah, certainly the sechach, needs to be grown from the ground. If in the future, if it's a reference to the skin of the liviatan, it's something along those lines somehow transitioning us into, uh, so to speak, the way it should be, or the way it could be in the future in that respect, I still don't know what any of it means, mm-hmm. though, right? I still don't know what the significance of this Orosh Livyatan is really all about, and I won't fully, so that's the disclosure from now, or the disclaimer from now, as we won't fully develop it, at the very least, I think, Maybe we'll be able to glean a significance. Go ahead, many more. between the farming and the herding. Maybe it's the similar idea. Yeah. It might be, and it'll also be completely related to the point. Right. So, I mean it, keep them coming, but uh, I, I will very much accept such a distinction as well. But Jack furthermore suggests, I, we haven't learned together in a long time, but you know all the uh, themes, thank God. Um, furthermore suggests that there's a dichotomy, there's a split throughout at least Sefer Bereshit, but really throughout the Torah, uh, between those who are herdsmen, like uh, Avraham, like uh, Yaakov, certainly, the children of Yaakov, B'nai Israel in Egypt, and Moshe, they're the herdsmen, and then the agriculturalists, uh, the Egyptians, the, those who were in Sidom. Um, Cain, as opposed to Hevel, and so forth, seems to be some sort of division where there's positive herdsmen and negative agriculturalists, but then things shift when you get to Sefer Devarim, we have a vision of the land of Israel, but you're getting ahead of me, and you know, we'll be able to piece those together potentially at the conclusion of this. I want to really just surface level, just to ask again, what's the significance of this Sukkot Orosh Livyatan? Even if the statement in the Gemara Masech Bava Batra, without understanding it, was that in the future we'll be eating from the flesh of this Livyatan, I understand that a little bit. I understand some sort of, you know, to envision, uh, for example, when we uh, ascended Har Sinai, or when some ascended parts of Har Sinai, the end of Parashat Mishpatim, there's a description of Vayochlu, Vayishtu, Vayiru, right? They ate and they drank. And the eating and drinking might not be a physical one. Michael Gamal will tell you that the Gemaram Berachot seems to suggest not a physical one, but the description of eating and drinking could be some sort of getting to the meat of the matter, no pun intended, some sort of grasp, some sort of um, uh, ability to uh, rise in terms of my perception, my connection to God. But what's with the leather or the skin, better yet, of the fish? Why is that significant? And why that of sukkah? And why is it in any way reciprocal for, to the merit uh, or, or in, in merit of sitting in the sukkah? So I'd like to, to, for a moment, take you in a a parallel direction of confusion for a moment or two and then try to piece these two ideas together. And uh, so let's keep that on the back burner. Let's keep that sukkat orosh leviatan, the sukkah in the future, made from the skin of this leviathan. That's on the side. What is that all mean? Indeed, the Pasuk says that in Barachin Avshi, that Livyatan ze yasarta lesachek bo. There's some sort of playing with it. What is the significance? It'll play into our message at the end as well. What does it mean to play with it? Why is it just God has fun? I mean, hard to understand exactly what that means. And what is playing in general? Oh, that'll, uh, Sharon, you, you should team up with Jack. Uh, it'll, it'll help. Um, it'll help in the scheme of things. But uh, so we'll return hopefully to that point as well at the end. And so the parallel questioning 
is the following. It's just uh, more a, uh, a query, not, not per se, a difficult question. You see, uh, there, I'm actually, I, I just ordered a book. I haven't read it yet. It arrived a day or two ago. And uh, it's a book, uh, if I remember what it's called, um, I think it's called Temptation Transformed. That could sound uh, uh, bad, but it's actually a book about how uh, uh, the description in our literature, in our rabbinic literature, starting, if I'm not mistaken, from 13th century and onward, take a, took a certain shift, and certainly in our cultural vision, as to what the fruit, and here's the small niche point that the book's about, what the fruit that we ate from in the Etz Hadat really was. If I were to ask most of the people in the room who haven't uh, learned with me and been beaten by me on this point, mm-hmm. everybody says it was a apple, of course. Apple seems to have first been introduced by Christians late in our in our you know discussion of this matter. Um, and again, today's day and age, every picture that's drawn, certainly by Jews and, and others as well, it's always that apple. It's the forbidden food, fruit being an apple. The Gemara, interestingly, has a discussion about this. Again, when the Chachamim discuss matters of this sort, much as Sukkot Orosh Leviathan, uh, they're not really talking, at least in my opinion, about the literal fruit that was eaten from. First and foremost, it doesn't make a difference unless there's a lesson to be learned from it. And secondly, we don't have any concrete evidence. So it's as best as we're going to do in understanding this, the Chachamim will be looking through each of their suggestions to teach a lesson, to try to understand what does this represent. So the Gemara Masechi Barachot actually presents three separate opinions, three options as to what it was. The first opinion of Bimeir says it was Gefin. So it was grapes, which were in turn, I guess, very quickly fermented and turned into wine. What's his logic? What's his rationale? How do you sin without good alcohol in your system? That's what Bimeir's opinion. The second opinion is Rabbi Nehemiah. He says it was a fig. Well, if you if we listened earlier, the fig leaves made them their clothing. It makes sense, says Rabbi Nehemiah. If their clothing came from fig leaves, it must have been from the same tree that they sinned from. It was eating a fig. And the last opinion in the Gemara is that it was Hita. doesn't sound like a tree at all, fascinatingly. But it's rather the production of bread from wheat. What's the rationale? What's the logic in that? Uh, so he, he, he suggests, Rabbi Yehuda does, that we only have a certain inclination to sin from or to be led by our desires from the age around which we start eating bread. Prior to eating bread, we're certainly not making independent decisions. And even psychologically, we're not really going after lust in that sort of fashion. So it had to be bread. Bread is a mature state of being during which a person can be led astray. Those are the three opinions in the Gemara. The fourth, conspicuously missing from the Gemara for one reason or another, is cited in the Midrash, it's Rabbi Abad de Akko. He suggests it was an etrog. I'd like to for a moment or two focus on that. Where does he derive that from? Well, he says that the Pasuk says that Hava raised her eyes and she saw that the tree was pleasing to the eyes. Doesn't say that the fruit were pleasing to the eyes. The tree was pleasing to the eye. What could it have been about a tree that's pleasing to the eye? It's the wrong person to ask that question because I love trees. So I think all trees are pleasing to the eyes. But his opinion, his understanding is that trees are generally speaking not pleasing to the eyes. And in turn, it had to be the tree which qualitatively was beautiful. In what way is it beautiful? 
because as the Hachamim state in Masechet Sukkah as well, we'll discuss in a moment, a citron tree, the tree of an etrog, is unique in the respect that both the fruit and the bark have a taste. Now the bark, I'm certain, although I never tasted it, is not exactly the same richness as the fruit, the etrog itself, but it has a taste, and that's unique. So the beauty of the tree was, was manifested in the fact that Tam etzo upirio shavim. But the fruit hangs tight, hang tight, hang tight, always 10 steps ahead. Uh, so that's the suggestion in the Midrash. Uh, so that's again, so catching us up to date, then we have Sukkot Orosh Livyatan on the side, on the back of our heads. And then the second issue we're addressing is sounds like out of left field until Jack blows it. Um, it's a question of what is the first tree that we uh, ate from, so to speak. Again, each one of these opinions. I think connected with a message. The last one, a little bit hard to understand. What's the message? It's just that it's a beautiful tree. Is there some sort of depth to it? The first three opinions, they explained very clearly why they had those opinions. The bread and the wine and uh, and the fig. Now, this fourth one doesn't fully provide the rationale and reasoning, but you should know, before the jack point, you should know that the Gemara Masechet Sukkah suggests on Daf that one of the ways that the rabbis were able to determine, they had a tradition on this, but to determine from the text of the Torah that the words Peri Etzadar, which are mentioned in Vayikra, Peri Kaf Gimal at the end, which is a reference to the Etrog, who said it's an Etrog, translate the words, Peri, fruit, Etz, tree, Hadar, beautiful. Or maybe it's uh, some sort of exotic fruit. There are many fruits which might be more pleasing to the eyes. Who said that it's an Etrog? So we have a tradition. Harambam calls it a Perush Mekubal Moshe Rabbeinu. Except going to be so, but his understanding of this Gemara, which then sets out to give different opinions as to how you can deduce it, is to say, even if you have a tradition, you can find hints in the Torah to this. So one opinion, for example, is that Hadar is similar to, if I'm not mistaken, the Greek word or Latin word, uh, Idur, says the Gemara, which if I remember correctly, they say it's like water. Idur means water, and a citron tree is in some way associated, affiliated with water stream nearby, in some respect. It, it can grow both from rainwater as well as next to the stream of, uh, of it's, it's not one type that doesn't, it's not uh, specific to an environment, it kind of has that uh, status. Alternatively, it's Hadar, not Hadar, but Hadar. Hadar, that the fruit, the citron, stays on the tree throughout the year. If you don't pick it, if you don't, if you don't pick an apple on an apple tree, it's in an apple orchard today, they fall off. If you don't pick apparently a citron, an etrog, it stays on and grows bigger and bigger and I imagine that's how people with those really big etrog, that's where they got them from. So it's hadar, means to dwell, it kind of just stays there. But the first opinion in the Gemara suggests that the reason we know, so to speak, that the Torah is referring to an etrog with Piri Etzadar is because what's the most beautiful fruit? The most beautiful fruit is the fruit which has a taste as well as its bark having a taste. Piri Etzadar, it's a fruit from a tree which is beautiful. The beauty of the tree, much as Hava saw it, is inherent in the taste of the bark. Now, that's already a little jarring for me. That every Sukkot, in the opinion of the rabbis, we hold an etrog, which is not a commemoration per se of a sin, but certainly could conjure up thoughts of a wrongdoing, of a decision to transgress God's word. 
is there any affiliation? It can't be that this is just coincidental in the eyes of the rabbis. I don't know, then it's got to be, at least in my opinion, the fact that the rabbis deduce in both of these circumstances, the hachamim do, that we're talking about an etrog, there's some sort of connection as well. Are we commemorating sin in the eyes of the hachamim? Is there something alternatively relevant to taking an etrog and in some way connecting it to the so that's the second question I'd like to address. And in order to set forth a direction, I now appeal to Jack's comment from earlier. All right. So what Jack referred to earlier is to a well-known midrash. The midrash is cited in source number eight. It's the commentary of Rashi to Bereshit Perek Alf Pasuk Yod Alf. You see, the Pasukim describe how when God speaks in Maaseh Bereshit and when the ground brings forth in Maaseh Bereshit, in the first chapter of Bereshit, there's a, some sort of incongruence. They're not exactly the same. Whereas God seems to say that what should come forth from the ground in Pasuk Yod Alf in source number seven is, It's pity. Osepedi, Pasuk seems to describe the tree of fruit, which makes fruit. Uh, somehow the Pasuk says what came out was et osepedi, missing that second word pedi. What's the difference between those two? Says the Midrash, it went like this. Another hard to understand Midrash, another hard to understand same of the rabbis. God said the trees should taste the same as the fruit. That's et pedi, osepedi. Instead, the ground rebelled in some respect, and instead, we have trees which the ground doesn't taste the same, excuse me, the bark doesn't taste the same as the fruit. The fruit tastes good, but the bark doesn't. Somehow the rabbis are appealing to this sort of description, this etrog description there as well. It's almost as if trees were all supposed to be etrog trees, but only an etrog tree is an etrog tree where the fruit and the bark taste good, and they're hadar. Now, the other trees are not so. Now, what's the lesson in this statement? What's the lesson in each of these statements together? I would suggest the following. Rav Cook, together with others, suggests, going backwards, uh, with regards to this last midrash, that the way to, to decipher this midrash is to think for a moment a little bit broadly to understand what a tree is when, as I said, very opportune day to do this, you're at an orchard and you look at the trees, the significance, the reason you're coming to that orchard, the reason you're growing uh, apples is in order to get the apple. The outcome, the destination is, is the apple. That's very clear. You have no real interest in the bark of the tree. The bark of the tree is significant in as much as it brings forth the apple. Uh, the bark of the tree is the journey. The bark of the tree is the process that brings you there. It means to say, then, the description of an ideal life, the life in which we're truly manifesting ourselves in this world in the appropriate way, is one wherein our bark is identical to our fruit, which means to say uh, so much of what we do in our everyday lives is really that journey. I, my example always is Baruch Hashem, past this stage in life, Rhoda, even me, past this stage, it appears, um, changing diapers uh, is a very much that journey. As you look at your child, if you do, in that moment, you're very much not excited about that process, about that journey. You're very much looking forward to the day when, well, at the very least, they're not wearing diapers any longer. At the very most, they're successful, they're following in a certain legacy and direction. That's destination-driven. 
is there an easy way to find significance, to have a sweetness to the changing diapers? That one I haven't figured out yet. But other aspects of life, when we're making a, a living and working in, uh, in whatever profession or job we're involved in, in raising families in other ways, in planning, in doing, in much of those journeys of life, the significance oftentimes is lost and we only focus on that destination, focusing less on the journey, if not at all, on the sweetness that could be inherent in it, and instead only focusing on where I want to be. The description in turn of of humanity, well, beginning with the ground, is one in which if you're going to be doing this right, you're going to be living a life like the Etrog. Your life will be one wherein that journey, the bark of the tree, will be identical to the fruit which comes forth from it. That's the beauty in its fullest sense of the Etrog. That's the way, so to speak, the ground was supposed to be acting and exhibiting God's will. That's where we as human beings broke off and, so to speak, the ground as well, even before us. That's where in our lives, much of what we do feels like the changing the diapers, where we can't find any sweetness in it and instead only see the significance in that final destination. If you'll pause for a second and realize the significance in turn of the consequences of deciding to eat from that tree, well, very clear from the Torah. The Torah says, as a result, the ground will be cursed, and the ground will be It's going to be a ground which is filled with hardships, difficulties. It's childbirth for a woman as well. Hardships, difficulties, difficulty in realizing and experiencing the significance of what goes into it. The harder the journey is, the more difficult it is to be able to feel and to realize a certain sweetness in it. But the challenge in turn, the challenge in leaving, the decision we made, so to speak, back then, the challenge of human beings endemic to who we are is one in which that separation between journey and destination, a world of process that we've, that we've inhabited, that we live within because we are human beings, the challenge is to be able to transcend, to be able to find within every one of those actions a purposeful intent, something significant, a certain sweetness and, and particularity which enriches my life and those around me. That's very much, at least in my mind, the description of that last midrash that Jack was referring to. If we move that backwards, the decision in turn of Adam and Hava and eating from this tree, looking at the etrog is not looking at the etrog and thinking about sin. Looking at the etrog on Sukkot is quite the opposite. Looking at the etrog on Sukkot is realizing the potential that we have, the significance that could be in every aspect of our lives, even the journey, even the process, as you make your way to that destination. Truth is, Sukkot is probably, at least in my mind, the most appropriate time for doing so. Sukkot commemorates, as per one pasuk in Parashat Emor, leman yedirutorotechem, so that future generations will know, ki basukoto shaftiet bnei Yisrael botziotam eretz misraim. I brought bnei Yisrael in Sukkot, whether it's clouds or it's actual walls, it's a machloket between Rabbi Eliezer and, uh, and excuse me, Rabbi Yehoshua and Rabbi Akiva and. In, in Masechet Sukandaf, Yoda Alf. Regardless, it's a mahlok, but when it comes down to it, it's commemorating the journey. It's commemorating the temporary dwelling in the desert. We don't commemorate the entrance into the land of Israel. We commemorate and we celebrate instead 
the 40 years in the desert. If you ask me, those 40 years in the desert, we might not know about 38 of them, but the first and the 40th were not so wonderful, certainly not the first. So I don't know what all those years really were about, what are we really celebrating? What are we appreciating? We don't have a holiday which directly, as per the Torah, celebrates the arrival in the land of Israel because the Torah doesn't tell us about the arrival in the land of Israel because the Torah leaves us in a journey-like state. The Torah never describes the conquest of the land. That's in Sefer Yahushua. Moshe's life as the greatest prophet, as that leader of Am Yisrael ends purposefully before a destination, before the goal is achieved. Yes. Interestingly enough, if you think about the whole concept of, of Sukkot, how Hashem really provided everything, there was no process in the desert, right, in the Midbar, so to speak. I would argue, I would argue that we have to fine-tune your words. It's not that there was no process, it's that the process was intermingled with the outcome. It's that we didn't have an arduous, difficult time right, right. in so, so, so I'm comparing that to Adam HaNishon in Gan Eden Indeed. as, as be- before, right, when he chose a life of process Indeed. by saying I want to choose. Indeed. I and as a result, head, Victor... I want to have that ability. And a, the same way a, Moshe Rabin, same way we went into Israel to... And a as a result, process. I'm with you, and as a result, we won't live in Sukkot throughout the year. Right. Right? But we can and will stop in the Sukkah and think about the fact that for a long period of time, we lived in process intermingled with destination. We lived a life in which those, that travel was significant in and of itself without the difficulties, without the sour and sweaty side of it, right? It's about appreciating it. If it's about realizing that as a human being, I'm not going to be able to merge these two. I'm a human being. I'm not going to have everything. I'm not going to live in Gan Eden. But there is that experience in this in in the interim. Right. Perhaps that's the really the ultimately the goal of of living it in Galut, which is I'm going to leave you there until you figure out how to enjoy the process. Indeed, basically, because be clear about that. To be clear with you, I didn't like what you said earlier. Eretz Israel is not the beginning of process. Eretz Israel, as per the Torah, is where it all ends. For all intents and purposes, it's done once you got to Eretz Israel. Well, there's a chance, certainly, but there's a challenge in finding a process once you're in Eretz Israel. In other words, throughout the that, desert, that was where you had to. You had to. You, you, here's your land. Now go. Great, Victor. Great. But but in terms of, you know, throughout the Midbar and throughout the life of Avraham, which are very paralleled one to the other, and I point this out all the time, there's a halicha and there's a re'iyah and there's a sight and there's a search and there's a journey. Once you're in the land of Israel, that's all over. You're in the makom. Uh, so once he arrived in the Makom, what's there left to do? So I think Parashat Re'e is the antidote to that. Parashat Re'e says you're going to have another Makom in the Makom. The Makom's going to be the land, but you're going to have a Makom, and your mind and, and destination dri- driving should be for that Makom, the Mikdash, at all times. But ultimately speaking, the land does pose a certain challenge with respect to once you're in the land out of Galut. Well, then where is your process? Where is your growth well, as a human being? referring to the fact that nothing is done for you. But once it is. Once you've 
toiled the land. Once you've sowed it, but that's why and you're going land, to have. That's why it's a land where nothing is automatic, where it's not, where the irrigation is understood. not. Understood. Understood. So parashat ekev as well is the, is the antidote. Parashat ekev as well, where it's eretz, which is different than misraim, and it's going to be It's going to be a challenge there as well, no question. But Sukkot then is of this the manifestation of this in the fullest sense. Sukkot is where we're transported back into the journey par excellence entirely and fully. Sukkot is the time period during which we're commemorating not the arrival but everything that went up until the arrival. It's the time during which we say there could be an intermingling, a, a feeling of 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 resolute um, uh, a destination vision and feeling even to, while I'm in the process where everything that went into every decision I made was not one of just future driven but something that I'm living in in this moment there's significance to each one of these moments I would suggest in turn the Sukkot Orosh Leviathan is entirely appropriate for the holiday of Sukkot. I appreciating the temporariness of it. But so more than that, but more than that, the Or of a dog is not what you and I think about when we have a fish. I, I'm not much of a fish uh, expert. What I do know is that the fish is generally speaking filleted, or at the very least, we take the meat out from inside, and that's what we eat, and then we discard any of the skin. The significance of realizing and appreciating that even the oro, the skin of that liviatan, is going to serve a purpose. And what purpose? None other than a commemoration of Sukkah is a perfect fit to this vision of Sukkot. Sukkot is the holiday on which destination driven but experiencing and feeling and realizing the present circumstance as being enriched and filled with that richness and vibrancy of where I want to be. It's the holiday on which we see that. So the Orosha Livyatan will come in full force on this holiday. It's the holiday which very much is associated in Divre Nevi'im but in our liturgy as well, with a haritayamim type of perspective. It's a perspective of in which we say we've achieved what our challenge as human beings has been and is about to be able to say as a human being I am finite as a human being I'm not able to at all times be where I need to be but I can find a certain significance in every right, moment so I've recreated my Gan Eden if you tie, will you tie that to the Semchat Beit HaShoeva where what, they were just they were excited about the process it was nothing was happening but ultimately they were enjoying, so it's sort of similar in that theme. Uh, along the same lines, and maybe even further, the, it's just related, uh, 100%, the Simhat Beit HaShoeva was a time for happiness, the Mikdash was a manifestation of that happiness, happiness which was from drawing water independently, experiencing that process, and doing nothing with it other than pouring it out. It was, as Sharon mentioned earlier, the Livyatan is the vision of the Pasuk for a game. And what is a game? What is a toy if not enjoying, appreciating the process itself? Until you get a little bit older, learn how to parlay and to gamble and do all sorts of other <laughs> terrible things. Games are significant. Yeah, I know. I said a little bit older on purpose. Games are significant in and of themselves, and the competitive side also comes with age. A game could be and should be and was, as I understand it, in its initial, initial manifestation, and for little children until today, just fun and fulfilling 
without thinking about where it's getting me. It's not getting me anywhere. It's just an experience. It's a journey which is significant. The Vyatan is entirely relevant then to this conversation. Uh, to come to uh, what, what Jack mentioned earlier in terms of uh, ground versus, versus the skin of an animal, it's, it's very much along these lines as well. Whereas ground, as described by the Torah in banishment from Gan Eden, is Aruraha Adama. The ground will be cursed, and the ground will be the difficulty of process. It'll be Bezi'ata Pecha. We oftentimes alternatively can see in something like skin of an animal less of that arduous difficulty and toiling. That's not the description in the Torah. It's maybe an easier procedure, at least in the scheme of things. It means to say then, to piece each of these ideas together, to try to give a, a clearer picture of what I understand, a message, a trenchant message of the holiday of Sukkot in envisioning Sukkot as this afterlife experience in realizing that Sukkot at once brings us to the past, the Sukkah and the Midbar, while at the same time to this Sukkah of the future is to realize and to accept that each of those Sukkot, each of those experiences could and should be a similar one and we want within our lives to have a glimpse of that to strive for that, to realize that within that journey, maybe not the changing diapers, uh, maybe not each of those difficult and hard to wrap our head around experiences, but there can be what uh, philosophers would describe as a telic uh, uh, appreciation. I can find within this experience, telos means that it has a purpose. I can find the purposefulness in anything that I'm doing. I can be able to live in this moment, appreciate, feel its richness, and taste the bark of the tree and have it taste positive and good. To take the lula, to take the etrog on Sukkot is entirely related. Uh, to in turn envision it as the holiday in which we will be in the future in that Sukkot Orosh Leviathan while consuming that meat perhaps, but more significantly, the actual walls or maybe Sechach will be made from what seems like just the thing to get past in order to eat from the flesh of the fish. But that itself is purposeful. Just as the bark is, so too is the skin of that fish. To appreciate Sukkot then is to appreciate and to find significance in every step of that journey. It should be a challenge not only for Sukkot, but it should propel us throughout the year in that journey of life.